This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Jewish Currents, the historic magazine of the Jewish left. Jewish Currents is an award-winning magazine of politics, culture, and ideas, published quarterly in print and daily online. Dig listeners will want to check out Jewish Currents' podcast, On the Nose, as well as their newsletter on Israel-Palestine, which covers events on the ground and their global political ramifications, delivering up-to-the-minute reporting and trenchant analysis straight to your inbox. Sign up for free on the Jewish Currents website by going to jewishcurrents.org slash newsletter. Listeners also won't want to miss Jewish Currents' winter print issue, a reader on Israel-Palestine after October 7th. Subscribe now to receive this essential guide to the present moment. Subscriptions to Jewish Current's beautifully designed print magazine start at $48 per year, but in a special offer for DIG listeners, they're 50% off with the code DIG2023. That's one word, DIG2023. Jewish Currents is a truly essential publication. I couldn't have prepared this episode without them. Subscribe now. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The U.S. House just overwhelmingly passed a resolution condemning anti-Zionism as a form of anti-Semitism. The resolution defames all of us who struggle for Palestinian freedom because we're dedicated to a universal project of human liberation. The resolution is, of course, dangerous. It's also plainly an absurdity and arguably itself quite anti-Semitic. The U.S. House, mostly white Christians, just told a large and growing number of anti-Zionist Jews that they too are anti-Semitic. That includes anti-Zionist left-wing Jews in major organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace, and also anti-Zionist Satmar Hasidic Jews. As cartoonist Ellie Valley posted, it quote, codifies a single acceptable form of Judaism and links every Jew to a state committing crimes against humanity. The equation of Israel with anti-Semitism by Israel's staunchest defenders is long-standing. It has now reached a new fever pitch because Israel's defenders insist on defending crimes that have become so brazen, outrageous, and indefensible, and also because so many American Jews are saying, not in our name. The charge that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism grows louder because it must. It is a transparently desperate, cynical attempt to silence a powerfully growing movement. Most specifically, though, it's an attempt to render invisible or to excommunicate a large and growing number of anti-Zionist American Jews who've quite obviously played an important and high-profile role in the Palestine Solidarity Movement. This is a discourse that aims to disavow and deny a very inconvenient reality. The Zionization of American Judaism is a relatively recent phenomenon that was still far from complete by the early 1960s. Zionism itself only first emerged in late 19th century Europe and for decades faced a committed and multifaceted anti-Zionist Jewish majority. Zionism didn't become dominant among Jews worldwide until the 1920s or 30s. 
Even then, though, many Jews continued to oppose Zionism, either on the pious grounds of religious orthodoxy or on the internationalist premises of socialism, communism, and third-worldism. This is the first of my two-part interview with Shaul Magid on the long history of Jewish Zionism and its antagonist, Jewish anti-Zionism. It's a critical conversation to have right now, as the Israeli settler colonial project finds itself in a multifaceted crisis, genocidally attempting to resolve a Palestinian question that it cannot ignore or quietly manage on the margins, even as Israeli Zionist politics were, before October 7th, sharply divided over the future of the Jewish state. Zionism can't reckon with the existence of Palestinians. It also can't figure out how to move forward now that a century-plus of settler-colonial violence against Palestinians has ricocheted back as extreme reactionary illiberalism remaking the very core of Jewish-Israeli government and society. And real quick, two things mentioned in the interview that I should probably explain a little before the interview. First, you'll hear Shaul refer to Biltmore— what Biltmore refers to is the May 1942 Biltmore Conference at New York's Biltmore Hotel that brought together hundreds of Zionist leaders from around the world, a conference at which it was established with young radicals like David Ben-Gurion in the lead that the Zionist movement's primary aim be that a Jewish state be established in Palestine rather than the previous consensus favoring building a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Second, you'll hear mention of someone named Kook in both of these interviews. There are two Kooks, both rabbis, father and son. The father was the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of British Mandatory Palestine and is known as a formulator of the form of religious Zionism that would become the dominant form of religious Zionism, Kookian Zionism. The son took his father's ideas in a more radical, ultra-nationalist direction and became the spiritual father of the post-67 radical religious settler movement. Before we get started, The Dig is a unique political education project, and I think you know that because here you are listening to The Dig. Overwhelmingly, we rely on support from listeners like you at patreon.com to keep this podcast up and running every week. We also have books, mugs, tote bags to send you in the mail, depending on how much you give and where in the world you live. And all contributors get our excellent newsletter delivered free to your email inbox. But the real reason we need you to contribute is because it's contributions from those of you who can't afford to pay that allow us to get our political education out to everyone who wants to listen, regardless of their ability to pay. Please support The Dig. If you depend on us, please know that we depend on you. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Dig. Okay, here's Shaul Magid a professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College and visiting professor of modern Judaism at Harvard University, where he's a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of World Religions. He's also the rabbi of the Fire Island Synagogue in Seaview, New York. His latest book out recently is The Necessity of Exile, Essays from a Distance. This is part one of my two-part interview. Shaul Magid, welcome to The Dig. Thanks. 
I want to start by asking a contextualizing question before we really get into the interview. Why do you think this is an important conversation and an important time to have this conversation for my Jewish and non-Jewish listeners alike to learn about the history of Zionism and anti-Zionism? Atalia Omer, in a in a recent special issue of the Jewish Studies Journal Shofar that you edited, she criticizes Jewish critics of Israel who framed Israel's perpetuation of occupation, genocide, apartheid as a form of moral exile for Jews. In short, her argument is that it's wrong for Jews to frame their solidarity with Palestinian freedom as fundamentally about Jews repairing Jews' relationship to an ethical tradition that Zionism or Israel has damaged or ruptured. Omer instead draws on Judith Butler's argument, quote, that a critical Jewish intervention can only be Jewish if it is also not Jewish, but instead relational, centering, as it ought to from a restorative justice perspective, Palestinian experiences. Omer also draws on Edward Said's argument that we must start from, quote, the perspective of the victims of Zionism. And so before we get into a ton of history, and then in the second part of our interview, more recent history in the present, I want to set up the conversation with the basic question, why is this conversation we're having indeed so important right now amid the horrific genocidal violence going on in Gaza that's also an intense and multifaceted crisis in Zionism? I think that it's a good way to start because one could one could make the argument, I suppose, that maybe we shouldn't be talking about this after October 7th at all, that there are other things, the other more important things, that are the more pressing things, that we're in a kind of emergency situation which requires a certain kind of solidarity or circling the wagons on a variety of questions. But I would really push back to say that Perhaps it's this particular moment, which is, which is an emergency moment, which is a critical moment, that really kind of enables us to confront some of the questions that Atalia framed and that, that Judith Butler also framed, which is that Zionism as a project was a project of um, Jewish self-determination. It was a project of Jewish liberation. It was a project of, in some way, an attempt to complete or at least complete a particular period of time of Jewish history. But it was also, as much, it was a return to Jewish power. And with Jewish power is a return to Jewish responsibility. And it's interesting that that we'll get into this later, that Zionism sought to offer a response to, or in some cases, a resolution to the Jewish question. And we'll talk about what the Jewish question is Uh, But one of the things that Zionism introduced, and this is not something that you're going to find in Atalia or Butler or anything, but it's really Zionists themselves. One of the things that Zionism produced was what was called the Arab question. That is, how is Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel going to work with, in the early periods of Zionism, a majority of Palestinians or Arabs, as they were called, and after the establishment of the state, a large minority and that, that was a question that bothered people like David Ben-Gurion. It's a question that bothered people all the way up to the present. And it's a problem that in some way 
underlies the issue that we're facing post-October 7th. Now, it's not to say that the the lack of a resolution to the Arab question brought about the attack of Hamas on October 7th. I'm not saying that. But the way in which the Arab question was never really significantly dealt with in terms of questions of resources, equality, justice, the question of integrating the Arab minority into the democracy. And this is even before 67. This is from 1948 until June 1967. Afterwards, of course, the occupation. And one of the things that I find interesting about the post-October 7th is that October 7th in some way changed everything and perhaps in some way changed nothing. And by changing nothing, I mean that the same issues, the same challenges, the same problems, the same complexity that existed in Israel on the question of Zionism as a Jewish liberation project and the Arab question and questions of justice and equality and democracy, those questions are going to remain. They're not going to change. Both the Palestinian population and the Jewish population, those that remain alive after this this war, are really not going anywhere. And the basic structure of the society will remain more or less the way it was before. So perhaps it's really the time to think about that kind of question. Now, it is true that I think that Atalia and Judith have a certain understanding of universality as central to Jewishness, and therefore the question of Palestinian solidarity, something can't be Jewish unless it's also not Jewish. Those kinds of things, they're contestable and arguable. I think I think the, the argument is a cogent one. And it certainly is one that's worth thinking about at the time when a lot of Jews and a lot of Israelis are understandably very traumatized, very angry, full of a, a desire for vengeance, that the question of what it means to be a Jew in the world pre-Zionism, post-Zionism, pro-Zionism, anti-Zionism still remains a question that needs to be explored. There have been many, many varieties of Zionism and anti-Zionism over the years, and we're going to get into a lot of them, but inevitably not all of them. But let's start at the beginning. Why did Zionism emerge when it did in late 19th century Europe? It was, after all, this era following the French Revolution when spreading liberalism had emancipated Jews in many places, ending legal forms of discrimination across Europe and ushering in this rapid Jewish educational, economic, and social advancement. I was, to prepare for this interview, I, I was reading the introduction to the the classic and rather sympathetic book, The Making of Modern Zionism, where Shlomo Avineri writes, quote, from any conceivable point of view, the 19th century was the best century Jews had ever experienced, collectively and individually, since the destruction of the temple. So why plot mass emigration? As Avenari puts it, quote, if the 19th century was so good to the Jews, why did it, for the first time, give rise to a movement that attempted to uproot Jews from the continents in which they had resided, albeit precariously, for 2,000 years? And... And to explain that, I think, we, we need to, to look at how liberalism's always actually particularist forms of universality, how that posed problems for Jewish difference, particularly because at the very same time, 
We saw nationalism in nation states coming to define to define both political sovereignty and collective identities. What then were the problems that Zionism proposed to solve? And what and what was Zionism's proposed solution? The emancipation, I think Avinari's right, the emancipation really was a seismic change in Jewish history. It enabled Jews, it invited Jews to become part of European society. And at the same time, it also raised questions about the ability of Jews to be able to fully integrate and be a part of that society, both within the populace and within the various governments. So that what we might call modern anti-Semitism or some would call just anti-Semitism itself is a product of the emancipation. It doesn't, anti-Semitism doesn't really emerge until Europe is challenged by the integration of Jews into the society, the upward mobility of Jews, the, the desire for equality, And this brought about a number of different possibilities. One was assimilation, in which Jews would fully become a part of the society, and in doing so would have to shed some or all of their Jewish identity, whether it was Jewish practice or Jewish identity. Another was a form of Jewish internationalism in the Bund or Jewish communism more generally, that Jews would become part of the Fourth International. They'd become part of the larger global movement for equality uh, and labor rights. In the case of the Bund, as Jews, as a Jewish group. And in a sense, Zionism, what Zionism was another alternative, which was basically, basically functioned under the assumption that emancipation won't work in terms of creating a viable alternative for Jews to remain attached to their Jewish identity in this emancipated world. Now, some people link that to the Dreyfus affair with Herzl, and some people say it happened before that. Some people talk about the 1880 pogroms. Uh, Some people talk about a variety of different things, the 1840 blood libel in Damascus. I mean, there are various events that happen that make Jews start to question, even if the emancipation was done in goodwill, whether it ultimately would be successful. Now, it's important to note that the early Zionists were not basing themselves on religion as the anchor of Jewish identity. They had already given up on religion, so they were already secular. So it was a secular alternative to the assimilationist or acculturationist alternative in Europe. And in a sense, what the emancipation created was the Jew, what becomes known as the Jewish question. Um, Marx wrote about it, and then Herzl famously wrote about it as well, which is even if there is a desire to integrate the Jews fully into European society, will that be successful? So I, I think the other thing to add here is, is the proliferation of race science that's happening at the same time, where the Jews are being racialized and medically understood to be, you know, more inclined towards diseases as an insanity and double consciousness and all of that stuff. So these are all happening at the same time. And in a certain way, Zionism offered an alternative that was complicated, but also simplistic. That is, why don't we just find a place for the Jews outside of Europe? Why don't we just allow ourselves to mirror the Western European nationalism that's taking place? Why don't we essentially agree 
with Stalin who said the Jews aren't a people because they don't have a language and they don't have a land and enact that kind of national project, which from their perspective would be a win-win. It would be a win for Europe because it gets rid of the Jews. And it would be a win for Jews because it would offer them an alternative where they can live more freely as Jews in a, in a secular register. I mean, one of the interesting things about this is how it was initially rejected as being utopian, impractical, something that, as, as Sloan Mavineri said, right, the Jews are finally becoming upward mobile in the 19th century in Europe, and now all of a sudden you want to take the Jews out of Europe and bring them to some place that's like the Middle Ages, that doesn't have any natural water sources, that doesn't have any technology. And also from the religious sector, it was, wait a second, but this really abandons the whole concept of the Jews living in exile till the Messiah brings them out. And so in some fundamental way, Zionism is an expression of the Jews simply being tired of exile. They just didn't want to live there anymore. They didn't want to live among the Goyim anymore. They didn't want to live under the auspices of another culture. And this is because they are mirroring Western European nationalist movements. Where does Theodore Herzl fit into this story as the proclaimed founder of the Zionist movement? Does Zionism really have one single founder? Where where does his articulation of the Zionist project in the 1896 book Der Judenstadt, where does that fit into these broader nationalist currents bubbling up around the late 19th century Ashkenazi world? I mean, he's not the founder of the movement. Uh, he doesn't coin the term. There were important figures like Leo Pinsker and his book Auto-Emancipation that existed before, or Moshe Hess's Rome in Jerusalem, or you have earlier religious thinkers that began to, to suggest that it may be time for Jews to return to the land of Israel during the Ottoman Empire. I think what happens is that Zionism coalesces around Herzl. And he's actually a kind of interesting, somewhat of an ironic figure. He's an assimilated Jew. He doesn't know Hebrew. A few years before he writes The Jewish State, he basically came up with an idea that the solution to the Jewish question is that Jews should convert in mass to Christianity, right? I mean, he's a bit of an ironic figure, but he had a very strong sense of charisma and he had a very strong a visual sense of, of being a kind of, of prophet. I mean, the, the interesting thing I find about Herzl, and this I got from reading Derek Penslar's uh, biography, of him, recent biography of him, is that, as you said, in 1896, Herzl kind of comes onto the scene and becomes a public figure and becomes kind of the, the, the iconic figure of Zionism. And by 1904, he's dead. The whole thing was seven years, seven or eight years. The entire story of Herzl was like a, just a snapping one's fingers. It was, it was kind of like the Beatles. They come in 63 and by 69, they're done, right? But of course, you know, Herzl, like the Beatles, right? Herzl changes everything. He changes everything because he is able to articulate a particular kind of vision that this the various Zionist factions were able to get around. And that was, that was the establishment of a state, even though most Zionists at that time were not statist Zionists. They were not people who were interested in a state. What did the state even mean? I mean, the Ottoman Empire still existed. It was really, uh, they were interested in autonomism, right? They were interested in concepts of autonomy. 
even as Dmitry Shumsky shows in his book, Beyond the Nation State, even people like David Ben-Gurion, even people like Zev Jabotinsky were not necessarily, you know, advocating for a state at that time. But, but again, you know, sometimes movements need a figure to be a, a kind of centerpiece. And, and Herzl provided that for, for Zionism. Speaking, speaking of what does a Jewish state in Palestine even mean when what we had then was the Ottoman Empire, a empire, not a nation state, how did Zionists ultimately settle on settling Palestine? What, what role respectively did the colonial world order and what that made seemingly, quote unquote, available for settlement play? What role did biblical resonance play? What other factors? How did they all come together to inform where early Zionists thought mass Jewish settlement, a mass Jewish settler colonial project might be possible? We often think of Zionism and the land of Israel as being um, attached at the hip, but it wasn't necess- that was not necessarily the case. The idea of creating a Jewish enclave, a Jewish autonomous and sovereign enclave, didn't necessarily rest on, on the land of Israel. In fact, the land of Israel was quite impractical because first of all, there was the Ottomans. And second of all, there was this large Palestinian or Arab population. That's why people like Simon Dubnov talked about diasporic nationalism. And then the territorialists were basically saying, well, yes, I mean, we just need to find any place that could be a refuge for the Jews. The reason that the land of Israel was the place was in a certain sense, it was the most obvious given historical memory. And it was also the place that a lot of Zionists like Herzl and Nordau, who really didn't care that much about Palestine. It didn't have to be the land of Israel, right? That was the famous Uganda plan. They realized that we're not going to sell this product to Eastern European Jews if it's about going to Argentina or going to Uganda. So in a sense, it fed a particular historical memory that really had a redemptive messianic quality to it, that this was going to be the fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old promise of the Jews returning to their ancestral homeland. And so that became the sine qua non of Zionism. But there were battles between the territorialists and the Zionists, especially once Europe starts to really collapse, where the territorialists are saying, look, we have to do, we have to get as many Jews out of Europe as quickly as we can. I don't care where we go. I don't care if we go to Galveston, Texas, or Uganda, or Argentina, or any place. And the Zionists were saying, no, it's the land of Israel or bust. That's it. That's the only way it's going to be. It turned out that the Zionists won, largely because the Ottoman Empire fell apart. Um, the British mandate emerged, World War I. So it became, it became the centerpiece and it became fused to the Zionist project. But it really wasn't at the beginning. It's, this, it's a secular, even, I guess, atheist Zionist leaders engaging in the savvy religiously inflected marketing decision for a place made available by British colonialism in the Middle East. Right. Zionism quickly took on many different forms. There, there was the labor Zionism of David Ben-Gurion on the, the Zionist left, the revisionist Zionism of Zev Jabotinsky on the right. There was also religious Zionism, which meant something different then in this pre 
48 period, I think it referred to the, the small slice of Orthodox Jews who supported rather than opposed Zionism. And then, then there were the cultural Zionists who, who did not prioritize a Jewish state and in many cases, in many cases opposed it in favor of a binational Arab and Jewish single state in Palestine. We'll get to the cultural Zionists and binationalists in a moment, but I want to first address these main labor and revisionist currents, the Zionisms that accumulated a mass political base and that ultimately wielded real political power and ultimately founded the state of Israel and oversaw the mass expulsion of Palestinians. How did these two currents, labor and revisionist, come about? And and what issues in the decades leading up to the Israeli War of Independence and Palestinian Nakba, what issues were they fighting over? What distinguished them? When we talk about Zionism, in the certainly in the pre-state period, we're really talking largely about different forms of what became later known as labor Zionism. That was socialist, in some cases communist, but certainly socialist of various forms that were interested in the creation of a kind of utopian national agrarian project. This is the kibbutz movement. This is the second Aliyah. Revisionist Zionism, which now we will talk about it later, really dominates Zionist discourse, certainly politically, was quite small. And Jabotinsky was really an outlying figure at that time. And in fact, Jabotinsky leaves the World Zionist Congress and starts his own new World Zionist Congress because he was so much at odds. Ben-Gurion forces him out in 1935 of Palestine, and then he dies of a heart attack in the Catskill Mountains in 1940. So in a certain sense, Ben-Gurion wanted to get rid of Jabotinsky and wanted to get rid of the revisionist Zionists. However, there were other forms of smaller groups of Jabotinsky followers, and they're actually quite important. They made up secular militant groups who were committed to acts of terrorism and violence, both to convince the British to leave and also to terrorize the Arab majority, because at that point, there was an Arab majority. There wasn't a Jewish majority in Palestine until 1947. So for most of that early period, Jabotinsky was advocating what he called majoritarianism, that what needed to happen was that Jews had to immigrate in mass because without Jews being a majority, a Jewish nation state could never exist. These terrorist groups, the Stern Gang, later the Irgun and Lehi, these were groups that were influenced by Jabotinsky. But Jabotinsky himself was not really as as militant as people often think. He really was a strong advocate of minority rights. But he was very influenced by Italian fascism and very hyper-nationalist. And Ben-Gurion understood that he was going to pose a danger to to the project of Mamlachtiyut or the project of statehood that he was interested in. And this ultimately comes down to the famous case of the Altalena, where Ben-Gurion bombs a ship uh, that was coming in, led by people in the Irgun with arms for an alternative militia. And at that point, interestingly enough, it kind of ends that battle. The, the Altalena becomes the kind of last stand of a particular kind of, of secular Zionist militancy, and, ben, and, and Ben-Gurion wins the day. So Ben-Gurion was a strong believer that, that statehood was the only alternative, 
to the Zionist project, that cultural Zionism was fine and good as far as it went, but ultimately it would, it would have to be a nation state. And he also was not in favor of the pure political Zionism of Herzl, uh, who was really more of a monarchist than anything else and wanted to establish a monarchy in, in, in mirroring the Austro-Hungarian empire where he came from. And, you know, Ben-Gurion was very forceful, and one of his great victories was to, uh, to go to the Biltmore Hotel in May 1942 and to convince American Zionists, which is a whole other story which we should talk about, where is American Zionism at this point, convince the leading figures in the American Zionist community to abandon their non-statist project and become part of the state of Zionist project. And he and, well, he and Chaim Weizmann went to Biltmore. Interestingly, Ben-Gurion did not want to go to Biltmore. Chaim Weizmann convinced him to do so because Weizmann understood without, without American Zionists, the project would not really ultimately be successful. Early Zionists repeatedly invoked anti-Semitic descriptions or seemingly anti-Semitic descriptions uh, of so-called diasporic Jews as, as weak, sickly, excessively bookish, effeminized, a people whose whose spirit was crushed not only by non-Jewish political rulers, but also, also by the dead weight of rabbinical law. They contrasted this weak diasporic figure with a, a model of a strong new people, drawing inspiration from everything from the Ukrainian Cossacks to, to Palestinian Bedouin. And the idea was to revitalize this, this enervated Jewish people through revitalizing the land. You write, quote, the Zionist project was founded on such anti-Semitic assumptions that the Jews in the diaspora were a flawed people made diseased and unhealthy by centuries of exile with no meaningful culture of their own. Or as Leora Halpern writes, quote, the Zionist movement sought to overturn Ashkenazi Jews' colonized position in Europe through the colonization of the East. Lay this out. How did Zionists seek to remake and reshape the meaning of Judaism and Jewishness and really who, in a very kind of vital sense, who Jews were? How was that vision itself informed by non-Jewish peoples and cultures and societies' anti-Semitism? The relationship between, although as ironic as it may sound, the relationship between Zionism and anti-Semitism is a very, very complicated one. And it really begins with Herzl. Herzl himself said that in, in a sense, anti-Semitism would help his cause, precisely because anti-Semitism would convince Jews that they had more of a chance of being successful outside of Europe than inside of Europe. If you read some of the early Zionist thinkers, and I'm thinking about Beryl Katznelson and, and Aaron David Gordon, I mean, it's very striking the language that they use in describing diaspora Jews, precisely as you said, as sickly, as weak, as diseased. I mean, really just adopting all of the anti-Semitic tropes and using them as descriptions of the diaspora Jew, as opposed to the muscle Jew that Max Nordau kind of creates or the Ari Ben Kanan, Paul Newman figure in the movie Exodus, right? That uh, the idea of the Jew as strong, the Jew as virile, which in a certain sense is 
the anti-diaspora. So that Zionism, like in a certain sense, constructed its sense of self as anti-diasporic in terms of identity, in terms of um, self-fashioning, and even in terms of, of physicality. So you talk about these Ukrainian youth movements, the blue, the Blauweiss movement, the blue and white movement in Germany, which is taking after kind of German, German nationalist movements, uh, a religion of nature, a people of, the, of nature. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of really interesting and, and frightening, frankly, parallels between the, the muscle nationalism of Germany, the muscle nationalism of Zionism, the negative depiction of Jews among anti-Semites and the negative depiction of Jews among many of the Zionists. This all basically co coalesces around something that's called in Hebrew shlilata gola, or the negation of the exile, or the negation of the diaspora. And this really is a cornerstone of Zionism. Uh, Arnie Eisen, in his book, Galut, and in a number of essays subsequent, basically says every aspect of Zionism contains within it a notion of shlilata gola, of the negation of the diaspora. And in a certain way, Ben-Gurion once said in passing, I don't remember the exact source, that one of the greatest challenges to Zionism would be a robust, safe diaspora. And in that sense, the greatest challenge to Zionism is America. Because Europe, in a certain way, certainly after the 1930s, but even before, was only affirming the Zionist vision of the diaspora. This was not a place where Jews can feel safe. This is not a place where Jews can be successful. This is not a place for a Jewish future. America provided an alternative model, which is why American Jews, and now I'm not talking about the religious sector, I'm talking about you know, the, um, the reform and more liberal sectors of American Jews, were extremely skeptical of, of Zionism because Zionism was the great threat of dual allegiance, which Jews had tried to uh, extricate from themselves from the beginning of French emancipation. And I think Ben-Gurion knew that. And that's why he wanted to, con to convince the American Zionist establishment that ultimately they have to get on board with his state project. But he says something very interesting in a letter to Jacob Blaustein in 1950, where he states, the Jews of America do not need to support the political aspirations of Israel. It's interesting for the first prime minister of Israel to say that. You know, I, I think that if somebody said that today, they would be considered an anti-Zionist. And thus an anti-Semite by many Zionists. And maybe an anti-Semite. But Ben-Gurion is saying, I don't need American Jews to support Israel. I need American Jews to help Israel in certain ways. But the, in terms of their political affiliation, that is not what is required of American Jews. Now, he says different things at different times where he kind of changes his mind. But... He was a believer, Ben-Gurion, that ultimately the dangers of American Jewry is not anti-Semitism. The dangers of American Jewry was assimilation. And that ultimately the only place for the Jew to live fully as a Jew would be in the state of Israel. And I think America has proven not to be a place of the disappearance of the American Jew. And I think that this is part of the tension that we'll talk about later regarding uh, the American Jewish community and its uh, fidelity to Zionism. 
I want to explore this a little more. You write, quote, To those familiar with the history of Zionism, it is well known that many of these early Zionist ideologues viewed Zionism as the replacement for Judaism, not a complement or extension of it, nor a faction within it. Today's heresy hunting ignores, dismisses, or perhaps is simply unaware of the utterly radical and revolutionary nature of Zionism itself. It elides how Zionism often claimed to replace Judaism, which some viewed derisively as essentially a product of exile. And I want to pause to under underline this because it wasn't just that early Zionists were drawing on anti-Semitic tropes, but that they actually, in many cases, opposed Judaism as a religion. Is that right? What do you mean that Zionists wanted to replace Judaism with Zionism? Did they want Judaism as a religion, the whole tradition of the rabbinic sages, did they want that to to disappear and be replaced with something new? Certainly some of them did, obviously not all of them. And, you know, when you think about Zionism in 2023 and the the, experience expanding role of religious Zionism. I think it's important to note that, as you said in the beginning, in the 1920s, in the 1930s, in the 1940s, really through the 1960s, religious Zionism was quite a small sector of the larger Zionist project. And many of the Orthodox groups like Agudat Yisrael, who decided to become part of the state, were not really Zionists in a sense. Yes, I think the certainly the early radical Zionists uh, like Josef Chaim Brenner and uh, and Berdachevsky and others, they certainly did see that Zionism was the fulfillment and replacement of Judaism, certain, certainly normative Judaism in terms of Jewish practice. And one of the ways that you see that in the 21st century is debates around Jewishness versus Israeliness, that there, is many, there are many in Israel that would really prefer to see themselves primarily as Israeli and secondarily as Jewish. And I'll give you just one other anecdotal example. In the movie Israelism, which is an interesting movie about uh, the disenchantment of a number of young American Jews about Zionism, they're interviewing a reform rabbi, a woman who is, if I'm not mistaken, the Hillel rabbi at the University of Connecticut. And she basically says in the interview outright, Israel is Judaism. She actually just says it right out, right? Unambiguously, Israel is Judaism. And I think that to some extent, that sentiment has become more and more common where the center of Jewish identity has moved from religious practice, religious belief and synagogues to Jewish federations, to APEC, to various other kinds of organizations, that to be a good Jew is to support Israel. There was an essay that I wrote about in the book that came out some years ago called The Un-Jew, which basically makes the claim that the, a Jew that doesn't support Israel is a kind of un-Jew. In other words, that their Jewish, their Jewishness is in a certain sense erased by their lack of support for the state. And I've seen this in more recent 
op-eds in the Jewish media that are saying that these groups like If Not Now or Jewish Voice for Peace, some of these, some of these progressive groups that are you know, against the war or not sufficiently supporting the Israeli cause, they should essentially be written out of the Jewish people. I mean, it, it, it's, the, the volume has become extremely high. And I think one of the things that's important about having this discussion now is that there's a history to this. And the history to this is what, what was known back in the 1970s as the Zionist consensus, or as I called in the book, the Zionization of American Judaism, that there was a very specific, intentional, uh, educational project of making Israel and the Holocaust the centerpiece of Jewish education for a generation of American Jews. And I'm certainly a product of that. You know, going to Hebrew school in a conservative synagogue in the 19, early 1970s, we learned about Israel, we learned about the Holocaust, then we learned a little bit about the holidays and we learned how to read Hebrew and not understand it, but that was basically it. That was Jewish education. Because if you were raised to believe in the centrality of Israel to your Jewish identity, you were a Jew in good standing. Early Zionists also also revealingly relied upon anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant sentiment and upon the political support of prominent anti-Semites, most notably including British Lord Balfour, whose 1917 Balfour Declaration paved the way for mass Jewish settlement in Palestine after World War I during, during the mandate period. Zionist emigration, he wrote, would, quote, mitigate the age-long miseries created for Western civilization by the presence in its midst of a body which it too long regarded as alien and even hostile, but which it was equally unable to expel or to absorb. How did European colonial powers, and, and Britain in particular, how did they view the prospect of Europe's Jewish question being answered in the Middle East? You know, there's all of this. There's all of this conversation about Israel, the relationship between Israel and colonialism, and Israel is Israel a colonialist project? Is it a settler colonialist project? Is it not a settler colonialist project? And people have written back and forth over the last couple of decades on this question, and it is a complicated question. It depends how you understand colonialism. It depends how you understand Zionism. But I think it really is not a contestable assertion to say that. Zionism was successful because of colonialism. Whether it itself was colonial can leave for another time. But certainly it's colonialism and the attitude that Europe had toward the Middle East, the attitude that Europe had towards Africa, particularly North Africa, that really enabled them to get behind the Zionist project as to, as something that they felt was a solution to a problem. And the problem was the problem of emancipation. And the fact that there were people that lived in the land of Israel, to European colonialists, that didn't really make a difference. And, and in, in a certain sense, it allowed and enabled and promoted that kind of immigration of Western Europeans or Europeans who happened to be Jews into the land of Israel. So here, Saeed's book, The Question of Palestine, really addresses this in that chapter uh, called, I think if I'm getting it right, Zionism from the perspective of its victims or something similar to that. And, and that is whether Zionism conforms to the international dictates of colonialism or not. 
Certainly, the inhabitants of Palestine saw the Zionists as colonialists. And of course, the Zionists were building colonies. And Herzl was talking about colonialism before colonialism was a bad thing. And I think it's important to look at that perspectival perspective as the formal definition of colonialism is not the same as the perception of colonialism. And also the ways in which Zionist, early Zionist settlers did view the indigenous inhabitants the way colonists, the way colonialists viewed the indigenous inhabitants in Algeria or in Egypt or in various other parts of the, the Maghreb or the Levant. So the, the, the formal question is much less, I think, interesting than the more complicated perspectival question about how the Zionist settlers saw the inhabitants and how the inhabitants viewed the Zionists. And and just to restate the question a bit, what how did the European colonial powers, how to what extent was their support for Zionism motivated by their eagerness to see the Jewish question resolved elsewhere? Very much so. I think there are two I think there are two things at play. One is the political problem and the political problem of the Jews or the Jewish question. And the other thing is the Christian issue. And, and you have people like Lord Shaftesbury long before Zionism, who was basically advocating Zionism, that many Europeans and much later evangelical Christians saw the Jews return to the land of Israel as the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that will culminate in the return of Christ. So in a certain sense, it was fulfilling, it was fulfilling a political need to re, to rid Europe of the Jews because the Jews were, even without the anti-Semitism, the Jews were just presenting themselves as competition for a quickly urbanizing, de-agrarianizing European world and the emergence of cities like Geneva and London and Paris and so on and so forth. And the anti-Jewish animus, which of course is at play, and also the kind of Christian dispensationalism that yes, the Jews returning to Israel, this is this is part of the prophecy. So I think all of these kind of go into it in a certain way uh, that make Zionism an attractive solution to a lot of Europeans on the question of the future of the Jews in Europe. Before we get to a discussion of the early anti-Zionist Jewish majority and all of and many of their, their its various strains and currents. Who were the early American Zionists, and what what led these early American Zionists to be Zionists when that was simply not a normal or obvious thing for a Jew to be? Right. Well, most Americans, certainly until the twenties, uh, most American Jewish leaders were not Zionists. There are a few very prominent figures worth, worth mentioned that were not Zionists, one of them being Kaufman Kohler, who was the rector of Hebrew Union College, who was a vociferous anti-Zionist. He was also the author of the 1885 Pittsburgh Platform, which was the kind of emblematic statement of the reform movement in America, which made it very clear that Jews are not a nation, they're a people of a religion, and they don't hope for a return to the land of Israel, and the, you know, the homeland of the Jews is America. So there was, there was that, and there were many others. And then the, some of the early Zionists, Solomon Schechter would be one of them, a reform rabbi from New Orleans named Max Heller, who becomes a Zionist in 1904, which is actually quite early, uh, certainly for the reform movement. And then Stephen Wise and Abba Hillel Silver. Then, you know, there are certain Jewish leaders that that become Zionists. But it's important to remember that American Zionists for most of that period 
were not necessarily in favor of establishing a Jewish state. And one of the most, perhaps the one I missed is the most, most well-known is Louis Brandeis. If you read Louis Brandeis's speeches from 1915, 1916, it's not about a Jewish state. They were interested in promoting Jewish settlement in Palestine. They were interested in the creation of a modern Jewish culture, the, the kind of revival of the Hebrew language and all of those kinds of things. But for the most part, they were not really statist until Ben-Gurion convinces them otherwise in 1942. When Ben-Gurion goes to Biltmore, American Zionists were interested in two things. They were interested in sending money to, Jew, to Jews who were settling in the land of Israel and to try to use as much leverage as they can to get as many Jews out of Europe as possible. This was 1942. To save lives. To save lives. And Ben-Gurion said to them, no, everything should really be about a Jewish state because that's going to maximize the possibility of saving Jewish lives. And that's, that's the, you know, Biltmore is a very, very transitional point. So some of the, the most powerful American Jewish organizations at that point, the American Jewish Committee was decidedly non-Zionist. A much smaller group, the American Council for Judaism, was openly anti-Zionist. But most of American Jewish leadership were not Zionists, and they certainly weren't Zionists the way we think about Zionism today. So that was a very slow, progressive change. But I think we have to remember, even though many European Jews were, were anti-Zionists or non-Zionists, certainly within the Orthodox sector, but even within the Reform sector, once the Second World War begins, that kind of all ends. Like in a certain sense, what the Second World War does, once you get to 1937 or 1938, even before 1939, is the situation really switches into an emergency situation of trying to excise Jews from Europe as quickly and as safely as possible. And all these debates, these Zionist debates about socialism and labor and culture and language, they all seem to become irrelevant. And in a sense, that becomes the ultimate, the ultimate kind of force of Zion, the Zionist consensus was really the Second World War and ultimately the Holocaust. And then kind of, what could you say after that, right? So, you know, after the establishment of the state in 1948, much of the anti-Zionism starts to fall away in America and in other parts of the diaspora. There isn't much going on in Europe at that point because it's just devastated. And not completely, but it starts to actually dissipate because it's really, you know, anti-Zionism doesn't really make sense anymore. But I will say to your question, American anti-Zionists post-state were largely of two groups. One of them were very worried about the treatment of the Arab minority, and they saw that as being antithetical to their liberal understanding of Judaism and morality. And they made that very, very clear to Ben-Gurion. There was a famous group that went to, uh, to tour some of the Arab villages in the 1950s with Irving Engel and, uh, and, and, and um, Nahum Goldman, and they gave a report to Ben-Gurion that was devastating in terms of how the Arabs were being treated. So there was that. And the other side were the, the American anti-Zionists who thought that uh, Zionism was not good for American Jewry. It was going to create a dual allegiance. Let's get more into these, these different strains of, of, of anti-Zionism, of early anti-Zionism, starting with 
the anti-Zionism of Reform and Orthodox Jews. And you mentioned that Reform opposition was based more on an assimilationist social or political arguments, particularly around Jews, the place of Jews in the United States, whereas most Orthodox Jews opposed Zionism on their religious grounds, that that enacting a return to Zion as an earthly project of settling in Palestine, that it would amount to a sort of a sort of blasphemy, a sort of rebellion against God. How would you distinguish these these two forms, these two major religious movements opposition to to Zionism in in the decades leading up to to the 1930s? This really speaks to one of the central kind of themes in the book. Uh, one of the things that they share and they there's a lot that they don't share, but one of the things that the reform anti-Zionists and the orthodox anti-Zionists shared is a belief in the viability of exile. And that being in exile is something that is positive for the Jews and constructive for the Jews and necessary for the Jews. Now, not being in an exile of persecution, but being in an exile which was more diasporic, where the Jews were able to function in the world and in a certain sense serve as a light to the nations that this was part of an embodiment of a light to the nations. Now, a lot of the reform anti-Zionists had given up on the messianic idea altogether. So they didn't really, I mean, certainly from the 1885 platform and those that followed that, even when it becomes a little bit more Zionists late in the 1930s, uh, are not interested in a return at the end of the day, not into a messy, there, there's no messianism. From the Orthodox perspective, certainly the ultra-Orthodox perspective, the anti-Zionism was founded on the notion that Zionism is a false messianism. It's, it's, it's transgressive. It is kind of an abrogation of the covenant of exile that was established by the rabbis in the first centuries of the common era. It was giving up on the messianic idea by having, in a certain sense, argued that it was being fulfilled. But, but Zionism does not fulfill the messianic idea on their reading, according to the traditional sources. So in a certain sense, Zionism becomes the very thing that Jews need to resist because as a secular project, even if you want to argue from the ultra-Orthodox perspective, if you want to argue that uh, Zionism does seem to resemble a kind of messianism, it's being done by a transgressive, secular, anti-religious a majority that simply by by definition could not be truly messianic. Now, this is something that Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook contests, because I think that one of the things that people don't quite realize about Rev Cook is that Rev Cook took Orthodox anti-Zionism very seriously, and he offers an alternative to it, and he disagrees with it. But he certain, deep, certainly deeply understands the problematics of what it would mean for a secular transgressive group of non-believers to be the carriers of this messianic period of history. But we should mention here that there are still Orthodox Jews today who are anti-Zionist on theological grounds. I think notably the, the Satmar Hasidic groups and the Naturei Karta uh, Haredi who are present in, in Israel, but, but anti-Zionist. Yes, I mean, the Satmar sect is the largest Hasidic sect in the world. Um, and it still remains very, very anti-Zionist. But I would also say even, 
even groups like Lubavitch Hasidism, which is not anti-Zionist in the way in which the Satna group is, are still not Zionists. They may be supporters of the state, they may go to the army, but they're really not Zionists. So I think there's a distinction that you need to be that needs to be made between those that may be pro-Israel but are not Zionists. Modern orthodoxy has really kind of bought hook, line, and sinker into Zionism, but that was not the case in the 1950s and the 1960s. Modern orthodoxy was much more reticent about Zionism. They weren't opposed to it, but they weren't necessarily they weren't necessarily attached to it in the way that they are, and their and their religious identities were not as tied into Zionism as as it is now. And that we'll get to when we talk about post sixty seven. The Turi Karta is a different animal. A lot of people put the Turi Karta and Satmar together, but they're really not quite the same. First of all, the Turi Karta are generally Jews from Lithuania. They're Litvaks. They're not Hasidim. They look like Hasidim. They dress like Hasidim. They dress like old, old Jerusalemites. But there was a big break between the Turi Karta and Satmar in the 1960s. After Yasser Arafat took over the PLO from Shukari, who founded it in 64, I think it was 66, 65 or 66, when Yasser Arafat took over, certain people in the Turi Karta began communications with Arafat. And the Satmar Rebbe, Yol Teitelbaum, was the founder of the Satmar Hasidic sect, at that point said, I'm out, I'm done. Like, I'm against the state, but you don't basically talk to the enemy. And so it's kind of an interesting break. Yeah, that's, I mean, that it's absolutely fascinating. I did not know that that origin story to the break, but it, it, it explains why we see the Naturi Karta at anti-Zionist protests, protests against Israeli military actions, and, you know, meeting up with Ahmadinejad at a conference in Tehran. <laughs> yeah, and, and the Satmar Rebbe, by the way, not Yoel Teitelbaum, because he had passed away, but the other, the next Satmar Rebbe came out very strongly against going to, te- of those Naturi Karta going to Tehran. So it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a complicated story, and I think from a bird's eye view, they seem like they're the same, but... When you get a little bit more granular, you realize that they're actually quite different. I mean, they're both opposed to the state, but the Satmar Rebbe was never interested in any kind of active way of dismantling the state. Whereas in the Turi Karta, some of them actually are. I'm Naomi Klein, and you're listening to The Dig, my go-to podcast for the most thoughtful, in-depth conversation on the left. It's an incredible place to be exposed to new ideas and new writing. And if you can, please become a sustaining supporter at Patreon. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Ireland, Colonialism, and the Unfinished Revolution by Robbie McVeigh and Bill Ralston. This groundbreaking examination of the colonial legacy and future of Ireland shows that understanding Ireland's experience must be central to grasping the history of colonization and anti-colonial politics throughout the world. Part history, part analysis, this book compellingly charts the centuries of Irish colonial history and explores possibility for the completion of the decolonization project today. As Barbara Ransby puts it, 
This book brilliantly analyzes the history and legacy of colonialism and resistance in Ireland and beyond. Find Ireland Colonialism and the Unfinished Revolution at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. The Jewish Bund, which is a, if not the, major reference point for a lot of left-wing anti-Zionist Jews today. It was a, a radical socialist organization that became a powerful force in the Jewish Pale of Settlement, the Pale being the areas to which Jewish residence was restricted in the Eastern European lands that were conquered by the Russian Empire. And the Bund played an important role in Russian revolutionary politics. How did the Bund articulate their anti-Zionism as part of a particularly Ashkenazi Jewish form of revolutionary socialism? What, what was the Bund's conception of what they described as a Jewish nation in Eastern Europe, really a Yiddish nation. How did they conceive of that, that Jewish nation and, and Yiddish national culture's place in a broader socialist struggle and also ultimately its place in what they envisioned would be not a socialist nation state, but rather a socialist state of nationalities? And then how did this conception of their revolutionary project in Eastern Europe and Russia inform their understanding of Zionism as a hostile and reactionary force. So it, it's a good point that you bring up because very often people think of the Bund or the Workman Circle. And I know I have a couple of good anecdotes because I come from a Workman Circle family. My my father's family were all Bundists and all Workman Circle people. That that the Workman Circle or the Bund were really universalists and they weren't nationalists or they were internationalists, they were nationalists, which is not quite true. I mean, there were Jews who were followers of Trotsky, who really were internationalists and, and became part of the revolution, not as Jews, but as just citizens of the world. But the Bundists really did have a national identity and they wanted to participate in this international workers' revolution as Jews. And they had a very specific kind of cultural template that they worked with that was focused on the Yiddish language that sought to be, really it became a kind of autonomism. It became creating, we want to create an autonomous enclave within the larger empire where we can participate as Jews in this international workers' revolution. The, prob the problem that they saw from with the Zionists was that the Zionists, it wasn't that they were nationalists, it's that they were ethno-nationalists. And they wanted to create an ethno-state. And they didn't want to be a part of the larger workers' revolution. Now, there were certain Zionists like Ben Barakhov, for example, who tried to bridge the two. He was a kind of very, he was a socialist, sympathetic to the Bund, but felt that that the socialism and the nationalism, even the ethno-nationalism, can actually work together. And that became the raison d'etre of, of Shomar Hatzair and Habonim and these left-wing kibbutz movements, who really did see themselves as part of the international workers' revolution through the creation of Jewish collective farms that would exist within a, a Jewish state, although it's very interesting and people don't know this, 
as much. There were a lot of those left-wing kibbutz movements in the 1940s that were actually opposed to a state. They didn't want there to be a Jewish state because they felt that that was going to undermine their kind of international project. So I'll give you an example to bring it up to the end of the 20th century. I went to a a work in the circle summer camp from 1966 until 1974, my entire childhood, the same work in the circle summer camp that my father went to in the 1940s. And during that time, this is through the Six-Day War, through the Yom Kippur War, right, 1967, 1973, I never remember ever talking about Israel. There were no Israeli flags. There was no Hebrew. There were no Hebrew songs. We learned Yiddish. We learned Yiddish stories. We learned about Yiddish authors. We had a kind of, you know, Shabbat type thing, but it was really just kind of like dressing in white and eating silently on Friday night. I mean, it was very, and this is, this is, this is the 1960s and early 1970s where, where there was still a sense that there is something called Yiddishkeit that doesn't really have anything to do with the Jewish nation state over there. Now, it wasn't anti-Zionist. There was nothing said against Israel. There was just nothing really talked about in favor of Israel. Now, if you go to that same summer camp in 2023, it's full-on Zionist. Like the, the, the remnant of that Yiddishist, Bundist, Jewish culturalism that didn't see a Jewish nation state as really part of its project has almost completely disappeared. The Bund weren't the only Jewish anti-Zionists in Russia. There was also there were also anti-Zionist diaspora nationalists like the Russian liberals led by Simon Dubnow, the the formulator of an ideology or movement known as Jewish autonomism. What was Dubnow's conception of Jews as as a people? Why did he then believe that Zionism was opposed to the realization of, of that vision for that people's flourishing? And how, how did the conception of a global Jewish people that he articulated, how did that compare to the Bund's conception of a Jewish nation in Eastern Europe? The Bund did not believe in a in a global Jewish people, but a particularly Yiddish Jewish nation in a particular place. Yeah. I, I don't know enough really to answer that, I think, in any kind of expert way. Um I do I do think no, but I do think that Dubnov really does offer another alternative. And his diasporic nationalism is not Bundist. Dubnov wrote, by the way, in Yiddish and in Russian. And he wanted to see himself very much as part of the Russian Empire. He didn't see the Russian Empire as being a just irredeemably anti-Semitic national entity. He saw that Russia really held open the possibility for Jewish flourishing in this kind of autonomous way. And it's funny with Dubnov because he's not really coming about it from the perspective of religion. He's not coming about it from the perspective of socialism. He basically is on trying to understand the conceptualization of Jewish autonomy, Jewish cultural and religious autonomy as the best way for Jews to flourish in a diasporic existence. Now, why he was so against Zionism 
You'd have to ask somebody else. I don't really know. But there was something about, again, I think it was this notion of the ethnostate. And also it's very, very strong secular dynamic that he felt was not very productive. Also on a, on a fundamental level, and this is not only true of Dubnov, it's true of all these people. Zionism was just totally impractical at that time. I mean, it was totally impractical. Like why would you think you're going to actually create a state out of nothing? I mean, how is that going to happen? Right. So I think that the argument of of impracticality was so deep among Jews who had been living in Europe for 1500 years and were deeply embedded culturally and economically in 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 particular in the case of Dubnov, Russia, that it just didn't it didn't it didn't really make any sense. And it is true if you read some of the early stuff written in Europe about Herzl, I mean they laughed at him. They thought he was it was just like to, it was a total, you know, pipe dream. The first wave of European Jewish settlement in, in Ottoman Palestine, known as the first Aliyah, took place between 1881 and 1903. How did that wave of settlement unfold? And how did it relate to emerging ideologies of Zionism, a, a movement that in many ways it really predated? So Leora Halpern wrote a great book on the first Aliyah. And, and you know one of the things that she argues in that book very convincingly is that it wasn't really a Zionist Aliyah. The first Zionist Aliyah is considered to be the second Aliyah, which is from 1904 until the First World War. That the Jews who came in the first Aliyah, first of all, were mostly primarily, well, they were mostly religious, not extremely so, but they were mostly what we would call orthodox. They were mostly entrepreneurs. They were mostly coming to basically set up businesses and set up farms and make money in a certain sense. And they saw that, you know, Palestine was really a great opportunity to do so. And it allowed them an incredible amount of cheap labor. And and the first Aliyah Jews were were fairly successful in setting up these kinds of, of businesses. And many of them were not at all welcoming of the second Aliyah, which were mostly Jews from Russia who were socialists, who were Zionists. And in a certain sense, the first Aliyah felt like, oh, you people are just messing messing things up. Like we're, we're trying to set up a business here. We're trying to set up an economy here. And you're coming in with all of your kind of ideological, we're going to, you know, rebuild the land and we don't want Arab labor. We want to do it ourselves. And they were, you know, in a certain sense, the first Aliyah Jews, it may be a little bit uh, anachronistic, but they were kind of bourgeois. Whereas the second Aliyah Jews were idealistic socialists, wanted to create a revolution. And so there was a lot of friction between the first Aliyah Jews and the second Aliyah Jews. But the second Aliyah Jews were much greater in number, although it is true that most sources say that among the Jews that came in the second Aliyah, something like 60 to 70% of them went back to Europe within five years. So it wasn't really a very successful Aliyah. And the reason were because the conditions were horrible, because, you know, malaria, and it just wasn't feasible. These are Jews that are coming from many of them from urban areas. And so a great a, a great little snippet of that is the story that Amos, uh, the, the memoir of Amos Oz, who writes about his parents. And his mother was from that Aliyah who commits suicide. There was also very high rates of suicide among second Aliyah 
Jews. So it was a much more co complicated story than I think we we often think. We've talked about labor Zionists and revisionist Zionists, and we've talked about a, a variety of anti-Zionist currents. A third Zionist current that we should talk about was was opposed to political Zionism, or was at least set apart from it. And this was was cultural Zionism, and also relatedly by nationalism, championed by people around an organization called Brit Shalom. The the movement was founded by a thinker named Ahad Ham, and it ultimately drew in a number of major Jewish intellectuals into its orbit, including the German Jewish philosopher Martin Buber and Hebrew University founder Judah Magnus. But by nationalism, despite its far more realistic assessment of what partition in a Jewish ethnostate would mean for, for Palestinians and also for Jews, it never had much popular support or political power. What was cultural Zionism and, and what was its relationship to binationalism? And what did binationalist thinkers, disproportionately intellectuals from Austria-Hungary, what did they envision for this imagined future of Arab-Jewish democratic co-governance in Palestine? I think if, you know, out, we've been talking about Herzl and Ben-Gurion, who two of these kind of major figures in the early period of Zionism. I think that Ahad Ha'am in particular is as important a figure in the history of Zionism as Herzl, and in many ways more influential, because Ahad Ha'am is coming from a traditional background who was basically making the claim that Zionism offers the opportunity for the full modernization of Judaism. Not the abandonment of Judaism for some political reality called the Jewish nation state, but the modernization of Judaism in the creation of Jewish culture, Hebraic culture, out of the, the sources of tradition. And that's why he was so popular among many of the intellectuals that you mentioned. And the other person I think is very important is Gershom Sholem, who was also part of that earlier movement. In a famous essay called Lo Zu HaDerech, This Is Not The Way, Ahad Ha'am comes out against, not against the establishment of a state. He was not against the establishment of the state. He, he was against the establishment of a state before the instantiation of a viable Jewish culture. He felt that first Jews had to engage in this cultural project, which meant reviving the Hebrew language and writing about Judaism and Jewish scholarship in the Hebrew language. Another person who was very much a part of this Ahad Amis movement was Chaim Nachman Bialik, who was the kind of poet laureate of, of, early, of the early period. And out of this cultural revolution, the concept of a Jewish nation state would take form. The problem with Ahad Ha'am's vision was that history didn't allow him the luxury of that process. And that as Europe started to fall apart more and more, even and after his death, the cultural project, which would have taken a generation or two, really wasn't able to continue without the political project taking precedence, given the nature of the danger of the Jews in Europe. So in a certain sense, Ahad Ha'am 
in one sense loses the, the, the battle between cultural versus political Zionism, but not because the political Zionist project was more compelling, but the political Zionist project just became more necessary at a certain point. But, but still, Akadam is really an incredibly successful Jewish thinker, probably one of the most in the 20th century in terms of his influence. And Israeli culture, as we know it, is in many ways a byproduct of, of, of his vision. Because remember, Herzl couldn't care if the people in, in Israel spoke Hebrew. They could speak Esperanto as far as he was concerned. It didn't, for him, culture was Vienna. And that's why he envisioned Tel Aviv as kind of Vienna on the Mediterranean. He really wasn't interested in the integration of the culture of the Jews from Arab lands. He wasn't interested in that whole kind of project that's become, in a certain sense, Israeliness, whereas Achadam was. Now, in terms of the binationalists, I mean, you're right. Brit Shalom was a very, very small group of people, mostly German Jews. Interestingly, many of the Jews from Germany and Czechoslovakia, Prague in particular, who were part of Brit Shalom, had experienced the hypernationalism of the First World War and were extremely worried about this ethno-national project because they had seen firsthand what ethno-nationalism can could produce. And this is particularly people like Martin Buber, Ernst Akiva Simon, and others. But I think that it never it never really got off the ground because I don't think that the, a lot of the Zionists in Palestine at that time really took the Arab question seriously. And I think in a certain sense, many of them made the miscalculation that Ben-Gurion made. Ben-Gurion's miscalculation was eventually the Arabs will mostly leave. Because why would they want to live in a Jewish country? There are all these other Arab countries that they could live in. So that didn't happen. And I think that was, that, was in, that was a big miscalculation on his part. But again, the miscalculation of Ben-Gurion, if it, just if I can repeat it, that the Arabs would leave because why don't they live in a, because why, why would they want to live in a Jewish country? They can live in all these other Arab countries. That is a total colonialist perspective because the, Jew, because the Arabs in Algeria and the Arabs in Iraq don't have anything to do with each other. It's this kind of idea that there's just the Arab world. There is no Arab world, right? There are different countries. It's, there's not like one thing. But that's a very, that was a very colonialist mentality, and I don't blame Ben Gurion for that because that's the way I think people thought. Certainly, Europeans thought. So the idea that somehow these people who were living in Palestine for generations would just very easily get up and move to Iraq, when they had no relatives in Iraq, they had no connection to Iraq. All they had was a language, and they spoke a different dialect. It it was a miscalculation that I think Israel is still living in the aftermath of. And frankly, that you hear defenders of Israel, Jewish and non-Jewish in the United States, make today, that Palestinian Arabs and Arabs anywhere are are interchangeable, who are Palestinians anyways, didn't they just invent their national identity? Well, didn't all of us just invent our national identities? <laughs> it's a convenient way for Zionists to make sense of there's only one Jewish country. There are 36 Arab countries, that, that kind of thing. But it really, you know, whenever I hear that or whenever I see that on social media, it's always like there is no Arab world. 
that's a manufactured fantasy that you've created to justify the fact that it doesn't make a difference if these people who have been living in Nablus for 10 generations, if they move to Oman, like what's the difference? Well, there is a difference. I mean, people, you know, are rooted in places where they live. And and uh, Rashid Khalidi, who was the Edward Said Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at Columbia, wrote a really interesting book, an important book called um, The Palestinian Identity, where he shows from Jerusalem archives that, oh, no, there was a national identity among people that lived in Palestine from about the same time Zionism began. And you can see that in you can see that in the media, you can see that in language, you can see that in food, you can see that in culture, that this idea that there's no such thing as a Palestinian, which was basically the position of Israel until the 1970s. It wasn't really until the 1970s that the country acknowledged that there is such a thing as the Palestinian people. You just said that that political Zionists didn't take the Arab question seriously, which is one reason that binationalism didn't really take root in Mandate Palestine. But but maybe relatedly, there's a naivete on the part of the binationalists because while anti-Zionists and binationalists would find common ground in, in opposition to, to a, a Jewish state, binationalists arguably failed to, to take stock of the, the fundamental problem of mass Jewish settlement under the auspices of British imperial power, which which makes it a form of, of of settler colonialism rather than mere immigration, even even if that settlement very you know we, we must acknowledge even if that settlement in the binationalist vision was not intended to serve the ends of a Jewish state or or ethnic cleansing, there's still a certain logic to what was going on that maybe that inevitably led towards the political Zionist favored preferred solution. No, I think you're right. I think it's a very good point. I think the binationalists made a lot of mistakes and um, they they didn't see what was happening. They also they also minimized Arab rejectionism. They didn't realize the way in which the Arab um, population, the Palestinian population, were increasingly unwilling to acknowledge the possibility of political Jewish presence in in Palestine. And that that doesn't happen right away, but I think there was a naivete of the binationalists. But again, I think underlying their their position was fear, the fear that they saw in World War I. I mean, the bloodshed, the mass death, the hyper-nationalism that brought about the destruction of Europe, this is something that they brought with them. So Martin Buber develops this idea that he calls Hebrew humanism, which is an attempt to rethink the prophetic morality of the Jewish tradition within the context of political shared power. But that, you know, never came to be. And then they fell apart and then they reconstituted themselves as a group called Yehud and they lasted for a certain period of time. But I will say in Buber's favor, because Buber dies in 1965, until Buber's last day, he maintained that binationalism was really the only possible alternative that would square with his understanding of the Jewish tradition. We should also mention that the the legendary German Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt was was very sympathetic to binationalism, and she wrote powerful critiques that that presciently warned of all sorts of problems that a Jewish state would bring about. Where does Arendt's critique of Zionism? 
fit into her larger way of thinking about the world? And then where does Arendt fit into the political spectrum of, of Zionism and particularly the the binationalist cultural Zionists? What, what did Arendt argue were the problems not only of seeking Jewish majority sovereignty over a state in Palestine, but also particularly of doing so under the auspices of colonial and imperial power? Arendt is somebody that I am always thinking with. And I always have Arendt's books on my desk because there's, I'm always going back to it because I think, although I don't agree with her in, in everything, I think she really is one of the most incisive political minds, I think in the 20th century more generally, but certainly on these kind of questions. It's a, it, is, it is complicated with Arendt because in two essays, one called Zionism Reconsidered and another one called To Save the Homeland, where she really kind of lays out her particular vision of the possibilities of Zionism because Arendt, in a way, kind of was a Zionist in the beginning. And she worked for the Zion, she worked for the for the agency, for the agency in France, helping Jews who were leaving Germany go from France to Palestine. So she certainly was sympathetic to the project. The thing with Arendt though is that she was really an anti-nationalist. And her anti-nationalism was really founded on the principle that nationalism creates refugees, that nationalism itself creates displaced people by definition. And so the very concept of nationalism was problematic for her, not only regarding Zionism, regarding the reconstruction of Europe after the Second World War as well. She was afraid of a number of things. One of them was... Uh, and this is in her in her article to save the Jewish homeland, where she says that creating a Jewish state where Jews will have power over a minority who don't like them, literally five years after the experience and the trauma of the Holocaust, will not go well. It just, it just, she's just making a descriptive statement. I mean, you can't take a traumatized people who just be who are victims of genocide and then give them a gun and put them in charge of people who actually don't think they have a right to be there. So I think what she suggested was she wasn't opposed to the establishment of a Jewish state. She she was opposed or or a state. She basically thought that that Palestine should be put in ten year receivership, UN receivership, and just let the dust settle, let the refugees you know, begin to rebuild their lives. And then we can talk about the possibility of the creation of a state. Of course, things don't work out that way, didn't work out that way. And, you know, Ben-Gurion was very, very adamant that it was statehood or bust. And the UN uh, was sympathetic enough to, uh, either guilty or sympathetic enough to what happened to the Jews in, in, in the Second World War, that a state was born into existence. But I really think in some way, if we look at the longer trajectory, which we'll talk about, Arendt was kind of right. She was really afraid of the slippage into a kind of chauvinism. And again, it's a chauvinism that she experienced during Nazism when she was actually kind of expelled from Germany and had to go to France and, and eventually made it to the United States. So there is, a, there is a, a kind of combination of a philosophical 
reticent about nationalism as the healthiest way for a collective to survive, because ultimately Arendt was totally sympathetic to a Jewish collective, and she was totally sympathetic to a Jewish collective that was political. I mean, she was a political thinker, but the nation state, the way it was constructed was something that she felt was ill-conceived. And, you know, she eventually kind of, after those essays that she wrote in the late 1940s and early 1950s, she basically kind of left Zionism and went and wrote about other things until the early 1960s when she wrote about Eichmann and then she kind of got her pulled back into the Eichmann thing again and never really was able to extricate herself from it. Although she was, you know, again, she was not against Eichmann being served the death penalty. She was against the show trial and the way in which this was just kind of collective bloodletting and that it wasn't very healthy and it wasn't going to be very productive in terms of the, the creation of a healthy Jewish society. And again, I think to some degree, to a large degree, I think she was probably right. We should pause here to discuss Mizrahi Jews or Arab Jews who lived all over the Ottoman Empire and in broader Arab world, including major historic communities in cities like Baghdad. And Zionism, of course, as we've been discussing, there's a reason we haven't mentioned Mizrahi Jews yet or Arab Jews, because it was a project led by Ashkenazi Jews. Where did Arab Jews fit into Ashkenazi Zionist Jewish and settler colonial imaginary? And what did Arab Jews, including the small number indigenous to Palestine itself, what did they make of this European settler project in, in the decades before 1948? It's a good question to follow the Arendt question because one of the real big holes in Arendt's thinking is that she was such an Ashkenazi-centric thinker. She really didn't think about Mizrahi Jews at all. They didn't really come into her. She was, it, was, it was a complete blind spot for her. So I think that you're right that Zionism was a European project. I think there was a very strong colonialist attitude that a lot of early Zionists had toward Arab Jews. They saw them as being uncivilized. They saw them as being uh, primitive. They saw them as being, in a certain sense, they saw them as being pretty much the way they saw the Arabs, except they were Jews. And... And, and therefore, the Zionists were committed on some level to integrating them into the project. You do have certain Zionist movements within the Arab Jewish world in parts of, uh, of Tunisia and in parts of Iraq. So it's not that it didn't really exist. But uh, to your point about the Arab Jews who were living in Palestine when not when the when the when the uh, Zionists came. It's an interesting story because many of those Jews felt themselves as proud subjects of the Ottoman Sultan. They saw themselves as very very much a part of the Ottoman Empire. They lived in fairly with fairly good relations to the Arab population. Many of them were Arabic speakers. Most of them were Arabic speakers, and there was a kind of delicate balance of coexistence that existed between the, the majority Arab population, the majority Jewish population. And many of those people saw that Zionism was upsetting that delicate balance. 
and there was the beginning of a kind of animus and animosity among the Palestinian population towards the Jews when they saw that, oh, these Jews are not just coming from Europe because there's anti-Semitism to live in Palestine. No, they're actually, this is a state-building project. There was a certain point where the Arab, probably around the second decade of the 20th century, where a lot of a lot of Arab leaders said, wait, these people are actually doing something. They're like buying this land and they're setting up the, they're not just like the Jews that we knew who were living in Jerusalem or were living in Hebron or were living in Tiberias, who were living their religious lives. So there was tension between a lot of the Jewish inhabitants of Palestine and the Zionists. And then... You know, the Zionists really needed, I mean, in a certain sense, Zionism saw itself as a broader Jewish project, but they also needed the numbers of Arab Jews. So the Jews from Morocco and the Jews from Algeria and the Jews from Tunisia and the Jews from Egypt and the Jews from Iraq and the Jews from Iran and the Jews from other parts, from Syria, there was a real concerted effort to bring them to become part of the project, but they would have to be Zionized, which really meant Europeanized, to become a full part of the project. So um, Ella Shochat and Aziza Chazum, both scholars of Mizrahi Jews in Israel, write a lot about this project that was known as the de-Arabization of the Arab Jews, getting the Arab Jews not to speak Arabic, not to teach, not to speak Arabic to their children, not to dress in Arabic clothing, to, in a certain sense, become more European-like, more Westernized, more white, if you, if, you, if you want to use that terminology. And there was a lot of resistance on the part of some of those Arab Jews to do so because they had their own culture, they had their own language, they had their own customs. And the religious customs were fine. It was just the mentality of seeing themselves as part of this larger European Zionist project. Now, there there are two things worth mentioning. First of all, the Yemenite Jews, who were different than a lot of the other Arab Jews, because they were coming from the tip of the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, and they were really cut off from world Jewry much more than the Jews living in Egypt or living in Algeria. And, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of stories, there's been a lot of scholarship about Yemenite Jews being brought to the land of Israel, being separated from their families, children and parents, and children's being, children being raised in Mabarot, in these camps or in these youth villages, told them that their parents were dead. I mean, there's some really kind of ugly stuff that goes back and forth in Israeli scholarship about what the Zionists did to the Yemenite Jews, who they really saw as a kind of primitive, uncivilized people who needed to be modernized. So it's a, it was a complicated story in that, that de-Arabization process that Shochat talks about was very deep within Israeli society, Israeli culture, specifically in the religious sector, but, you know, also in the secular sector. I mean, certainly within the religious sector in the 1960s, 1970s, for an Ashkenazi religious Jew to marry a Mizrahi Jew, even if she was religious, was a kind of intermarriage. I mean, that's not true anymore. There's really a lot more intermarriage between Arab Jews and Ashkenazi Jews or you know, Mizrahi Jews or however you want to call them. And as a result of that, there's been a lot of, I think, mending a lot of fences that, that, that were broken during that early period. I mean, in, in terms of the, the desire of Zionists to convince Arab Jews to move to Palestine. And in fact, like the Zionists need to make it impossible for the identity of Arab Jew really to be inhabited. 
There are controversial allegations, supported though by scholars like the Iraqi-Israeli historian Avi Shleim, that Zionist agents even orchestrated anti-Jewish bombings in, in Baghdad to accelerate Jews' flight to Israel. Yes, I've read that that too. I mean, the other things to mention is the case of Wadi Salib in the 1950s, which was a kind of neighborhood in Haifa that was an Arab-Jewish neighborhood that was kind of really liquidated uh, by the state to build these new neighborhoods. And the, the Mizrahi Jewish residents of the neighborhood who were largely impoverished really struck out very strongly against the government. And then there's another case of Musrara, which is a neighborhood in Jerusalem where a similar thing happened. The result of which in 1971, you have the organization of a a group of young Israeli Mizrahi Jews that called themselves the Black Panthers after the Black Panther Party in America, who basically went to war against the Ashkenazi government and the Ashkenazi elite. Golda Meir was the prime minister at the time. And so in a certain sense, you see that there's a racial component that's deeply embedded into the project, into the Zionist project, and the way in which the Mizrahi Jews started to recognize, especially young ones, started to recognize the way they were being held down, the way they were being kept in these neighborhoods, the way they were being, in a certain sense, left out of the upward mobility and treated essentially like Arabs. And and by the way, many of these Black, many of these Black Panthers, who then be, some of whom became members of left-wing parties in the Israeli Knesset, saw themselves very much in solidarity with their Arab neighbor, Palestinian neighbors, because they they saw this as a racial divide. They didn't see it as Jew versus Arab. They saw it as people of color versus white people. Yeah, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but this is so important to emphasize that this sense of Mizrahi disaffection and and really rebellion against the Ashkenazi Israeli establishment was for a moment really up for grabs and had some pretty left-wing and liberatory possibilities, but ultimately gets not entirely, of course, but significantly, substantially conscripted into the most reactionary right-wing Israeli and Zionist politics in many cases. Right. And of course, you have two things that are important. One is the founding of the Likud party, which had a lot of Mizrahi Jews as its base. And then the emergence of the Shas party, which was a Jewish Mizrahi party, a specifically Jewish Mizrahi party. So that in a certain sense, uh, Mizrahi Jews over the course of half a century had developed their own sense of identity and were able to kind of garner a certain amount of political power that they have, they're, they, they, they're quite, you know, they're, they're quite powerful politically now. And as you said, while in, in the old days, back in the 70s, a lot of those Mizrahi Jews saw themselves as leftists tied to Marxist groups or um, tied to the kind of racial culture wars of America, a lot of the Mizrahi Jews today have been, been have become part of the um, the radical right base, and you know Itamar Ben Gavir is just maybe the, the the most the most obvious example. To close out the this first part of our discussion, we've discussed socialist European anti-Zionism and American reform and Orthodox anti-Zionism, but we haven't yet discussed the huge number of anti-Zionist American Jews who were members of the Communist Party USA or various other socialist organizations. Historians say that an astonishing one 
in five American Jews in the 1930s were members of a communist-led organization at one point or another. And Benjamin Balthazar, who's written a really great article about this, he writes that in this context, Jewish communist anti-Zionists held that Zionism was a bourgeois Jewish project opposed to working class Jewish interests. And also, and this is where it gets really interesting, for interrelated reasons, a project that conscripted Jews into whiteness. Balthazar writes, quote, derided as nationalists, imperialists, and the petty bourgeoisie, Zionists were a small and often mocked minority within the Jewish socialist left. So much so that a recently revived Yiddish song ridicules Zionists as little and foolish, out of touch with the workers' reality. Balthasar continues, quote, The only way to retain a distinctly Jewish identity was to reject the racial conscription of capitalism. Zionism was a form of whiteness. How did communist and other socialist Jews in the United States during this period, how did they conceive of, of Jewish identity in terms of what Jewish-American communist leader and theoretician Alexander Bittleman called progressive Jewish culture? And why was that vision for Jewish people's liberation fundamentally at odds with Zionism? It is, it is the case that the question of whiteness and its relationship to Zionism, and not only that, but the question of the racialization of the Jew and the way in which Zionists in America wanted to racialize the Jew as a way of making a claim that they have no future in America because they are racially distinct and racially different. And finally, that even though Zionism was in its origins a socialist enterprise, it really saw itself as part of what the socialist and communists would say, a larger kind of, an arm of the larger American imperialist project, and, and therefore capitalism. And that the inequalities that are inherent in Zionism, whether it's from Ashkenazi Jew to, to Mizrahi Jew, whether it's from Jew to Arab, is really a product of that kind of capitalism and capitalism as the source of racism. And this is something, by the way, that you don't see only among the Jewish communists. This is something that you see among the, Jew, among the black radical tradition, Cedric Robinson's black Marxism and so on and so forth, that ultimately it's capitalism that is the source of racism. It's, I think, an important intervention that has largely been erased in American Jewish history, and that is the role of socialism and communism in the formation of American Jewish identity. And maybe in a certain sense, we're seeing the last embers of that in Bernie Sanders. I think Bernie Sanders is an interesting, in a sense, refugee from a particular Jewish socialist ideology that always saw Zionism as problematic. Now, interestingly, people like Bernie Sanders and Noam Chomsky, who's a bit older, Noam Chomsky really comes from a kind of socialist Zionist background and spent time in a kibbutz in Israel and Bernie Sanders spent time in a kibbutz in Israel. So a lot of these Jewish socialists did actually, and this separates the communists, but a lot of the Jewish socialists did actually go to Israel in the heyday, in the 50s, in the early 60s, and they saw something that was very, very compelling to them, 
But then it's, you know, as time moved on into the 70s, that started to disappear. In terms of the, in terms of the Jewish communist socialist bloc, as it was at that time when, when, when Ben is writing, they did, they did, they did see Zionism in a certain sense. They saw Zionism for, for, for what it was. This was an ethno-national project and it was, it was racialist, if not racist in, in, in principle, if not in practice, but also in practice. And that the socialist ethos that was driving it was ultimately not strong enough to be able to overcome the empirical capitalist aspirations of the state. So it moved from, you know, kibbutznikim picking avocados to Israel, a startup nation. And in a certain sense, the communists and the socialists, the Jewish communists and socialists, in terms of their critique of Israel and the Zionist project at a time when it was not necessarily convincing because there was a deep socialist ethos, if you look back from the 21st century into, you know, into Israel as startup nation, they would say, yes, of course, now they're globalized. They're part of the neoliberal imperial project. But still, on the question of Zionism, I think they saw from their perspective, again, it's only from their perspective, they saw from their perspective the dangers that lie ahead. And just like I think in many ways, if we look back from, from today back to Arendt's critique, and we look back from today to the socialist communist, the Jewish socialist communist critique, they were actually not incorrect on their terms. Now, of course, you could say from a Zionist perspective, well, we don't agree with their terms. But from on their terms, I think they actually were able to see something. And interestingly, the, the comment about Bernie is very interesting because many anti-Zionists right now in the U.S. are the same, you know, kind of demographic voting bloc that supported Bernie and are currently heartbroken by his seeming inability to call for a ceasefire, even as he has admittedly been one of the the more Israel critical members of Congress for quite a long time now, and really among the more anti-imperialist members of of Congress, whether he's talking about Chile or 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 Vietnam or Reagan's wars in Central America, wherever. And so, interestingly, Bernie's this bridge to that 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 vanished socialist Jewish American past, but also for young anti-Zionist Jews exemplary of some real generational limits in terms of his inability to break with Zionism. There's still, it seems, I mean, he has, doesn't really talk about this, but seems to be this this this, this resonance from that moment on his, his, his trip to the kibbutz. Yeah, I think it's very interesting the way, the way in which he got such strong pushback from that op-ed that he wrote in the New York Times, I think, last week, where in a certain sense, Bernie is an interesting bridge figure in that, on the one hand, he comes from a, I don't know if anti-Zionist is the right word, non-Zionist, you know, socialist upbringing and background, but he also was the, he also was the product of the Zionization of American Jewry. He also, in a certain sense, I think probably identifies as a Zionist today. The thing that we'll get to next time is the way in which the younger generation of Jews are simply not buying that anymore. And they're really questioning not what kind of Zionism, but they're questioning Zionism itself.
That was part one of my two-part interview with Shaul Magid, professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College, visiting professor of modern Judaism at Harvard University, where he's a senior fellow at the Center for Study of World Religions, rabbi of the Fire Island Synagogue in Seaview, New York, and the author of the recently published book, The Necessity of Exile, Essays from a Distance. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home, where it assumes respectable forms, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theoria Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and our newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such platform, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and going strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.